It is good to be with you this morning. I'm excited about what we get to talk about. I'm excited that young people are sitting down here close to the front. These are some of my favorite people. I'm glad that you're here. Thanks for being down front and uh, for being a part of this. I hope uh, that if you have been joining us, you've got your, uh, your journal, Book of John. This is what we're going through. The hopefully, you're going to get a chance to put some notes in here. We're moving now. Man, we were in chapter 2 last week. We're in chapter 3 this week. I mean, at this rate, don't worry. A decade tops before we get out of John. And some of this is just because there's so much good stuff. Oh, there's so much good stuff in John. Uh, I love the way that, that uh, uh, old, old John, a man later in his years, put this together in such a way for us to see uh, the brilliance of how the Holy Spirit guided him in putting this together. I love how easy it is for us to get to welcoming one another and talking with one another. Uh, I love that that's part of who we are is that you get a welcome. And I hope, like I said, that if you've been a guest with us, that somebody got to come and meet you and tell you a little bit about who we are. Uh, before we start, we're going to continue with uh, a tradition that we have here to pray for the kingdom at large here in this area. We take uh, time. This started before me with Jimmy Sportsman, who was the minister here before me. And we get to spend some time praying that God would move throughout this whole city. Uh, this past week, I got to meet uh, for the first time uh, Pastor David Payne over at the First United Methodist Church. Uh, I didn't meet him before. He's a kind man, a godly man who's leading that church. And so we're going to be praying for them right now. So let's bow. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your kingdom is so large it cannot be contained in any building, in any city, in any country. Uh, we know that your great desires for all people to come to you, uh, for all things to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that there's freedom there, we know that there's redemption, and that there is love there. And so, Lord, we ask in particular that you would make this city a place where people come to know you, that you would... Uh, ignite a fire under the people that claim you as Lord here in Kerrville. And Lord, we pray in particular this morning that you would be with those at the First United Methodist Church, uh, that you would bless them, that you would unify them, that you would give them peace, uh, that they would be able to see and worship who you are because of how great you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I ask that you give uh, Pastor David Payne this morning the, the gift of uh, speaking and that People would come to know you and see you clearer because of the words that you've put into his mouth. And Lord, we ask that many people would come to know you, would be loved, and would be redeemed because of the work of those at First United Methodist Church. Lord, we ask that same for us. Uh, we're thankful that we get to share in that with them and with other people that claim you as Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... I want to tell you about something I've seen recently before we get into this about Nicodemus this morning. A while back, uh, somebody sent me a link in an email that had a video, and I clicked on it, and what it, what it was called was the Selective Attention Test. And I don't know if any of you have seen this before, but basically what it is is it's a video, and before it starts, they're trying to get you to focus. And they said, we want you to really see how your attention is. And they said, you're about to see some people, and we want you to count the number of basketball passes by people in the white shirts. And so you click on the video, and what happens is you see three people in black shirts and three people in white shirts, and there's two basketballs. And they start weaving in and out of each other like the Harlem Globetrotters, okay? They're weaving in and out, and the basketballs are going back and forth all over the place. 
And so what happens is I locked into this because I love a good challenge. And so I locked in immediately and I started counting the passes that are going back and forth. And it's really hard to tell because there's two basketballs and like I said, they keep weaving. And I'm counting just the ones that are wearing the white shirts and not the people that are in the black shirts. It's going back and forth. And at the end, it pops up a little, the video goes down, it pops up a screen and it says, did you count? Did you get the right answer? It's 15. And I went, yes, because that's what I had was 15. I had counted so well. And then it says, but did you see the gorilla? I remember going, what? See a gorilla? I didn't, I didn't see a gorilla. And then it says, go back and watch. So you watch again, and this time I'm not focused on the people in the white shirts, and I'm not looking at the passes that are happening. And no joke, in the middle of that video, these people passing, a guy in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the screen, goes like this, and turns around and walks out. And I'm like, this can't be the same video. There is no way I missed that. There is no way that I missed that. And so I went back and I watched it again. And yeah, oh yeah, I missed it. I missed a guy in a gorilla suit walking to the middle of that scene because what I was doing was I was counting the passes. And in the middle of being focused and counting the passes, I missed something that was much bigger than that that was going on. I missed the gorilla. That's called selective attention. Or what they call it is inattentional blindness. So I didn't pay attention to it, therefore I was blind to it. I was focused so much on one thing that I missed something much bigger. That really plays into what we're going to be talking about today with Nicodemus. One of the things that we look at with this oftentimes is we look at this story of Nicodemus and we go, yeah, that's him. He didn't pay attention. Actually, what I'm going to do is ask us to look at such a way and go, maybe we missed something. There might be something in this story that we didn't actually see that John really wants us to understand. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and pay a little more attention and not just count the passes, and we're going to look for the gorilla in this, okay? Our first reaction oftentimes with this story, if you spend a lot of time with this story with Nicodemus, is you start thinking, man, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see what's going on with Jesus during this time. And sometimes we wonder why in the world that is, but I think really what we may see is we don't see what's really going on with Nicodemus in this time. There's a few reasons for this. We tend to have some preconceived notions about this story and about Nicodemus, and it's understandable. There's some things that we immediately jump to. One is we have this, this feeling about Pharisees and what that means. That means that he's closed-minded. That means that he's legalistic. That means that he's probably trying to set Jesus up for a trap. And, and it's understandable. A lot of times when we see Jesus' interaction with Pharisees, we notice that those things actually happen. And there is opportunities where they're, they're trying to trap him. But our mind immediately goes there. There's another thing that we may have some preconceived notions about, and that's because of his questions. We look at Nicodemus's questions to Jesus, and we go, this guy is clueless. He's kind of dense. He doesn't get it at all. He doesn't seem to understand what Jesus is talking about in the most basic of things. And then finally, we probably have some preconceived notions because we look at this idea of him coming at night in the dark. And we go, well, the guy's a coward. He's sneaking around. He didn't want to get caught. He wasn't really willing to risk it for Jesus like the rest of us are. And so what we see is that he's kind of this coward. So we have these ideas of what's going on with Nicodemus. And I think in looking at that and these preconceived notions, we miss something that's really remarkable there. We find ourselves not identifying at all in any way with who Nicodemus is. And I think because of that, we may be missing the gorilla in the story. There's a lot more to this. 
So let me, uh, let me address some of those things. The first thing is the Pharisee, okay? It's true that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And he's not just a regular Pharisee. He's kind of a super Pharisee. He's part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this court in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish religion that included some Pharisees and included some Sadducees. And then it had the chief priest in there as kind of the, the uh, tie-breaking vote in the middle of this. And you need to know, these were people of power. This, this was a court that made rulings. They set rules and customs in the temple and in the faith. They said what is acceptable and what's not. And not only that, but they had control of the temple guards to make sure that they could back it up and that they could enforce it with violence or even death. So he was part of a group of Pharisees, there's no doubt, that had power. But you need to know, this idea that we have that as soon as you hear Pharisee is enemy is really not true. Jesus spent most of his ministry around Pharisees. Most of the time that he was there, he was interacting with Pharisees. And I know we see some stories where he had some, some uh, uh, coarse interaction with them, but you need to know that if you were around during that time and you watched the way that Jesus taught and as a rabbi and walked, you would have assumed he's from the Pharisaical part of the religion. He acted more like that certainly than a Sadducee. So it doesn't just mean enemy. He spent a lot of time around them. And you need to know what we're seeing with Nicodemus is really a humility and an openness in what he's doing. He came to ask questions of someone really he considered as an untrained man. You know, it was one of the things they always were asking Jesus is, where'd you get your authority? Who did you train under? Who laid hands on you? Who gave you this authority? And instead, what you have is Nicodemus coming, and not only does he come, he calls him rabbi, which is quite a sign of respect, because you need to know Nicodemus would have been referred to as rabbi. So when he comes to ask Jesus, he's given him, in a lot of ways, the same title he would have received in that way. Nicodemus saw his actions, saw signs and wonders that Jesus was doing. Maybe he was there, or I'm sure he heard about the cleansing of the temple that we talked about last week that happened there. And with that, he decided that what he would do is he would explore, and he would come, and he would ask and as opposed to the Jewish leaders who did see Jesus cleanse the temple, you remember they came and said, hey, where do you get the authority to do this? Who do you think you are? Accusatory. You have Nicodemus coming and going, hey, I see that you're doing these amazing things. I need to know, what are you doing? What's going on here? And you need to know Nicodemus is a guy who's used to answering questions, not asking them. He was the guy that you would come to when you wanted to ask. What's going on with the religion? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Nicodemus had the answers. In a lot of ways, he was seen as this rabbi's rabbi because he was part of the Sanhedrin. And so you need to know that it was really, really important that we realize that this is a man who had some humility. Now, in addition to that, these questions. And we look at these questions, and like I said, we can tend to think, man, he's not too bright. He doesn't seem to get what's going on. But you need to know he's not a clueless man. He's not a dense man. This idea where he says... So what do you mean being reborn? Does that mean that somebody's supposed to go back into their mother's womb? And you need to know that is not because you got a guy here who doesn't get where babies come from. Okay? That's not what this is. He is not a guy who just doesn't get it at all and is being dense or kind of dumb. This question probably has a lot more to it than we think. It's possible that what's going on here, and there's some argument between uh, scholars on this, but it's very possible that, that Nicodemus is actually trying to have a deeper theological discussion uh, with Jesus than it first appears. This idea of being reborn was not new to the Jews. 
That's something that they were familiar with. As a matter of fact, it brings back imagery of the Exodus. This time where the Jews, Nicodemus' people, Jesus' people, felt like that they had been reborn out of slavery. They came out of Egypt as people that were slaves. And one of the things they did was they went into the Red Sea, and then they came out the other side, no longer slaves. They were reborn out of slavery as they did that. And not only that, but then when they went to cross the Jordan into the promised land, they went in on this one side, and they went into this water, and they came out as free people in a new land. This idea that the Jewish people had been reborn from slaves to redeemed people, to people that were now children of God, into a new land and into a new identity is a common thing. As a matter of fact, when you start thinking about how John the Baptist would have been baptizing in the Jordan and how they had these mikvahs uh, during this time, which were, were for ritual cleansing in the Jewish faith, one of the things that always happened was traditionally you would come in on one side and you would go down in the water and you would come out on the other side. And the whole point is the idea that I'm one person and then I go and I'm cleansed and I come out on the other side. New land, new person. Now, I don't know exactly if that's what's going on here, but it seems to make a lot of sense. But more than anything, I think what you have is Nicodemus saying, we've already been reborn. We're God's people. We're the Jews. We, we've been reborn. We were slaves, and now we're redeemed. We've already done this. So what are you talking about? We have the law. We've now been chosen. We have been chosen by God, and now... We are new, redeemed people. So what do you mean of having to be reborn again? Then finally, there's this coming at night. We look at that and we tend to think that what you got there is Nicodemus, who's kind of a coward. He's afraid of getting in trouble. He's afraid of peer pressure. And you need to know that it was probably quite a bit more than that. Maybe he came because he really needed a private conversation. I've got some serious questions to ask, and I need your attention. But no doubt, he had a lot to lose. He was risking quite a bit with this. His standing, his position, his community, the people that he loved and respected and that loved and respected him, but even more to that, answers that he's trying to get to these questions that I imagine he's not even sure he wants to hear. I'm going to have to ask some questions, and I'm a little bit afraid of what's going to happen. You need to know, Jesus is shaking his whole world and his whole system up. There's this idea of what's happening, and it's being changed. And you need to know, too, this idea of him coming at night is a theme you're going to see in John a lot. There's this dark and light, and it's going to come up a whole bunch. You're going to see this. You know, one of the things that started in chapter 1 was where they said Jesus was the light. Dark and light's going to be a big deal. You're going to see there's people who walked in darkness and they didn't get it and they didn't understand and then they became people of light. So this is a theme that happens a lot. So that's why John wanted to mention he came at night. He's confused. He doesn't know. He's trying to figure out what it is. And then Jesus is going to be explaining that to him. Nicodemus is not a dumb man. He's not a clueless man. He's not an arrogant man. He's not a man who's closed-minded. He comes to ask these questions. And, and let me just mention something here briefly. Several of you have asked me, uh, as, as we've talked about this, is to say, hey, hey have, you, have you seen the way this is depicted in The Chosen? And I don't know if you've seen The Chosen, but The Chosen is a free series about the life of Jesus uh, that you can get and watch, and a lot of you have watched it. And I want to tell you that I love the way this conversation is depicted with The Chosen. 
Now, you need to understand something. It doesn't just use the script from the Bible. So what it does is it, it adds some, some uh, conversation. It adds some words in there. But you need to know they're not claiming that that's Scripture. They're just going, it could have looked like this. And I want you to know, overall, I tend to think it's very valuable. I think it tends to put some humanity on Jesus and the people around him. And one of the things that I love about the depiction of Jesus and Nicodemus during this time is they're meeting at night up on a roof and it's dark. And more than anything, you can see the love that Jesus has for Nicodemus. You can see him looking and going, oh, I know this is hard for you to come ask. I know it's hard for you to be here. I know it's hard for you to get this. And then the conversation that happens and the continuing story of what happens with Nicodemus, I think is a, uh, it's a great uh, depiction of maybe what this was like. Okay? But you need to know, more than anything with Nicodemus, there's something he's missing. So he's come to ask these questions. He's not a dumb guy. He's not a clueless guy. But he understands that there's something missing. And he seems to get it. He seems to know that he does. So he asks these questions. And these are the questions that we ask usually in the dark. Questions that come to us in the dark. They can be scary. Questions that we don't always want to face the answer to. You can see Nicodemus coming at night because he's trying to figure out, is it possible? Is it possible that I've missed it? That I missed the whole thing? Have I spent my entire life studying, feeling that I had the right answers, and I'm following the right formula, and I'm being obedient, and I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, and I missed something? From what Jesus is saying back to him, you can see the words where he says, how is this possible? It's this incredulous nature. I've been carrying out the correct rituals in the correct way. Did I miss something? How can someone who has been doing these things for as long as I've been doing them and leading other people in this, how is it possible that I can be made new again or that I need to be made new again? Discovering now that maybe, maybe I missed something. Maybe I was counting the passes and I missed the gorilla in all of this. How can this be? And you need to know these are brave questions. Brave questions. These are questions of faith. These are questions of dedication. This is a man really wanting to know, what am I supposed to be doing in my relationship and how do I follow God? The main thing is that you have Jesus and Nicodemus having two different types of conversations. Nicodemus is focused on things that are fleshly and physical. And Jesus keeps trying to have a conversation that's spiritual, right? I mean, Nicodemus comes and goes, I've seen your signs and wonders. And immediately, Jesus doesn't ask the answer that question. He goes, well, you do need to know you need to be reborn. That's not an answer to the question. Instead, he's changing the topic. He's changing the lens through which we're going to have this conversation. We're going to talk about spiritual things. This is a huge theme throughout the Gospel of John, and I'm going to point it out a whole lot, okay? Every time that we see it, you're going to see that people will come and they'll say physical birth, and Jesus will go, spiritual birth. And they'll say physical water, and he goes, you need spiritual water. And they'll go, physical bread, and he goes, spiritual bread. It's this constant theme that's going to come through. And every time we see it, I'm going to point it out to you. And you can see John setting it up through what we've been through so far, right? There's this constant theme. Chapter 1, we have Jesus referring to coming and dwelling, and he images the tabernacle. And he's saying, now I'm the spiritual tabernacle. Talks about the, mentions the imagery of a physical sacrificial lamb. He goes, now I'm the spiritual sacrificial lamb. He's going to reference how Jacob saw a ladder, and he goes, now I'm the spiritual ladder. 
John the Baptist even says, I baptize with water, but somebody else is coming who will baptize with spirit. You see, he keeps going back and forth. He keeps playing these. Chapter 2, you see Jesus come, and when he cleanses the temple, one of the things that happens is he refers to himself as the temple. He goes, you're talking about a building. You're talking about the rituals that happen in here. And I'm telling you, you break me down, and I will build myself back up in three days because I'm the spiritual temple. And then you have chapter 3 here where you have Nicodemus comes, and he goes, I see you doing signs, and I see you doing wonders. And he says, what you really need to see is the kingdom of God. This spiritual kingdom, physical rebirth versus spiritual rebirth. He's talking about things that you can see and things that you can't see. And Nicodemus is locked in on the things that you can see. And Jesus keeps talking about these things that you necessarily can't see. You know, it's really interesting. Jesus didn't ask Nicodemus to do anything different, to do anything in a different way, or tell him he's doing anything wrong. He didn't say do anything different. He said you need to be different. You need to become different different now if anybody was doing the right things it was nicodemus he was following the rules he was doing things the way that he was supposed to he was following the way that they're supposed to worship he's following the way that they were supposed to do sacrifices that's why it's so important that john wrote down that it was this guy who came and jesus says you do realize you need to be completely reborn if anybody could point to doing things the right way it was him Nicodemus could go, I've been following the rules. I've been obedient in all of this. And Jesus is pointing out, there's a difference between what you do and who you are. You didn't do anything wrong, Nicodemus, but I have more for you. I want you to be more than just the things that you do. I want you to be changed at a spiritual level. And the reason that spiritual is more important than physical is because you must have God's help to change spiritually. That's where the whole idea of fruit of the Spirit comes from, right? It's the result of you spending time in the Spirit. It's the result of you staying next to Christ. It's what He will make in your life. I can change my action. I can do that by myself. I don't need anybody's help. I can sing this way. I can sing that way. I can pray this way. I can walk into church three times. I can walk into church four times during the week. I can walk into church no times during the week. I can do that. I don't need the Lord's help with that. But here's the thing is it doesn't change who I am. It doesn't make me a different person. It doesn't say, change the source from which I do all of these things. I can do that action and not know God at all. As a matter of fact, he kind of refers to that a few times. Instead, what he's saying is you need to be changed spiritually. And that will change who you rely on. It'll change who you trust. It'll change who you have faith in. It'll change who you love. And from that, all of these actions will change. But make no mistake, one comes before the other. You need to be changed in your motivation, in who you are, in your identity, in what I say about you, in what I do in you, before you're going to be able to change any of these other actions because they'll be meaningless without that. Now, sometimes when that happens... And we start talking about spiritual change. I know sometimes what can happen is we start going, well, this is great. This just seems like a cop-out. It's kind of new age stuff, right? It's mystical. Change in the spirit as opposed to the actions that happen. And I want to say it's actually the opposite of that. It's not that it doesn't require any change. It's that once you are changed spiritually, it will change everything else. 
Changing my actions doesn't necessarily change who I am. My temple, Nicodemus' temple worship, his tithes, all of these sort of things. And it's not carte blanche to do whatever you want, to say you must be changed spiritually more than physically. That doesn't mean you get to go do whatever you want. It doesn't mean that there's no obedience. It doesn't mean that your actions aren't going to be different. What it is is a way for God to actually own every single bit of you, including your motives, your heart, and your soul. That's what he's saying to Nicodemus. More than you doing things right, I want you to be reborn and belong to me. The problem with Nicodemus is he had in his head that this is the way God operates. Inside these lines, inside this temple, inside these buildings, inside these rituals, and this way. And what you have is Jesus coming and blowing that system up completely. Which is why Nicodemus is there and he's incredulous at the things that he said. The uniqueness of Jesus is that he is spirit in the flesh. He is what you can't see inside of what you can. Jesus is saying, I am spirit who came in the flesh to change you at the spiritual level. And then you'll be changed in the flesh. I came to change you in your spirit, but you keep wanting to talk about what we do with the flesh. And that's why there's this disconnect there a little bit. That's why I think Jesus has this great love for Nicodemus is because he's asking these questions. But Jesus is saying we got to reshape the whole conversation. If you just look at the physical and the flesh, then my identity is wrapped up in what I have done, not what God has done. And the problem is what happens with that is when we forget to notice the spiritual change that happens is we start looking for physical answers to spiritual questions. We have spiritual desires and need to belong, to have an identity, to have peace. I have fear. When I have fear, what I need is I need the peace of God through the Spirit. I have anger. Realize that what I need is the fruit of the Spirit of joy. For God to change me inside, not just for my actions to be different, but for me to be different. I'm a whole different person. I'm going to change you at the spiritual level. Jesus says, I'm going to save you at the spiritual level. Where you used to look at your rituals and your actions to save you and to justify you before God, now you're going to look at me. You're going to look at what I've done and who I am. And you want me to show you how? Because he's going to mention this. He takes a physical example from the Exodus, and he makes it spiritual again. So one of the things that he mentions there is he says, just in the same way that the serpent was raised up on the pole with Moses, I'm going to be raised up. So let me show you what he's talking about here, because this has to do with the Jewish people again when they left Egypt out of slavery, and they're traveling through the desert. This is what happens in Numbers verses 21 uh, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. If you want to, write that down uh, in your notes there. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And underline there verse 14 in John 3. You're going to want to underline that because we're going to look at that. This is what he's talking about. Verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. By the way, that miserable food was the manna that fell from the sky. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. We pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. 
So Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it on the pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Jesus is going, this is how I'm going to change you at the spiritual level, your identity. Here's the interesting thing about this story that I think is so fascinating about this, is you had these people, and they're out in the desert, and they've been complaining, and they're not trusting God. And so what happens is they get bit, and they're dying. And what he told Moses to do was not make a pole and put on it an image of the antidote. He actually made a pole and put on it the image of what's killing them, the curse. It's the snake, the serpent. This is what's killing you. He lifted the symbol of death so that as they gazed upon it, they would be healed from it and they'd have life. You see now what Jesus is talking about? In the same way, I'll be lifted up, a symbol of death and sin on a cross. And when you gaze at me and when you look and you believe, you'll be saved from the curse that you have, the thing that's killing you. In the same way, He's going to lift sin and death on the cross. See, here's the deal. I can't make myself patient or peaceful. I can't change my spirit. I can't change just what flows out of me. I can change some actions in some way, but that doesn't change where it's coming from. That doesn't change where the source of it is. I've tried that, and let me tell you, it doesn't work. I'm no good at it. Instead, what I do is I get to meditate and I get to think about and I get to gaze on what God has done and the peace that he's brought me and the mercy that he's brought me and the joy that he's brought me. And when I gaze upon what he's done, I'm changed in who I am. I become a different person. I can gaze at the cross and I can be saved. I can be changed spiritually. This is the lesson he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand. I'm going to change everything about you. I'm going to change who you are at the spiritual level. You're going to come to understand who I am. You're going to be able to rely on me. You're not going to have to rely on whether or not you know enough, whether or not you've done enough, never to, never, whether or not you've done it correctly. You're going to be able to look at me and what I've done, and you're going to be able to live. That's why it talks in Scripture about that our enemies and that our battle is not a fleshly one. It's not a physical one. It's a spiritual battle that's going on. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, talks about the spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what we fight. That's what Nicodemus didn't understand that he was fighting. Our enemy is not in the flesh. It's not in the other political party. It's not in another religion. It's not in people who do things differently from us. It's not in atheists. It's not in these other people. What it is is it's against the powers that cause you to question who you are in God's mind, who God says you are. It's that robs you of peace, of your worth, wondering whether you've done enough or you've been enough, good enough for a holy God to love you. That's spiritual warfare. And what Jesus is going to do is going to come and show you in such a powerful way that there's nothing that can take you away from the love of God, that he's paid that price. We're supposed to be people who are changed at the spiritual level because of what he's done. Galatians 5 talks about this as well, 522 through 25. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These are not things you can do. These are things you are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. This is what you're becoming through the Spirit. This is how God changes you in this way. And he's talking about this when you have this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, verses 6 through 8, where he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Let me mention something. I know I need to be wrapping up. I've kind of got, I just love this. This is so good. But you need to understand something. This word spirit and this word wind, it's the same word. It's the same word. Because the whole idea of the spirit of God was this idea. Is it's something you can't see, but you can feel and you can know it. And so when it starts talking about the spirit being here and you being born of the spirit and the wind blows where it wants to, you need to understand what he's talking about here is the spirit will guide you where he wants to. Nicodemus, it may look different than you've thought. It may take you to a place you've never been before. It may explain some things and blow up the system that you always thought you were in. You know that it exists, but you may not understand where you're going, but you can follow it and you can trust in it. The neat thing about Nicodemus is that he is no coward and he's not a close-minded man. As a matter of fact, I think he's kind of a hero because he pops up a couple of more times in John. Later, we see that as some leaders, probably the Sanhedrin, sent some soldiers off to arrest Jesus, the soldiers come back and they didn't arrest him. And so the leaders are trying to figure out why. And this is what it says in John 7, 47 through 52. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? He's talking about the soldiers. They said, nobody's ever talked like this. This is why we didn't arrest him. Verse 48, have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You're going to see Jesus made such an impact on him. There's going to be a time where he will stand up. He's going to stand up before the, the court, the people with power. And he's going to make a comment to say, well, maybe we should listen to him before we do this. And then later in John 19, this is after the death of Jesus, verses 38 through 40, he shows up again. This is after Jesus had died. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. What Jesus desperately wanted for Nicodemus is what he wants for us. It's the same thing. It's not just obedience. It's not just that you do certain things. He wants us to be reborn. That starts with baptism, but it doesn't end there. It's him transforming us spiritually. So often our focus has been on what I do and my actions and things of the flesh, and I'm counting the passes, and I forget, and I don't see the gorilla that's there that I'm supposed to be changed at a spiritual level 
that my trust in God, that my surrender into Christ, that my gazing on what he's done actually changes me, and it makes me want to do these things that honor God. That's where my worship comes from. I try to make sure that I'm doing the right things instead of focusing on what Christ has done, that he did the right things, and then letting him change me. We need to gaze at the cross of Jesus as it's lifted up and be changed. That's what he wants for every one of us. I want to tell you, if you don't belong to Christ, if you haven't had this experience yet where you go, that's who I'm going to follow. That's the guy who has the words of life. I want to tell you, we would love to help you move into that new world, to come in one side of the river and come out the other one. The way that we do that is we have people and we go, if you trust in Christ, we will help you. We will walk you through what it means to be baptized into Christ. For the old you to go away and for the new you to come out the new side in the promised land as a new person without shame or without guilt. At the same time, those of us who have grown up in the church oftentimes need that rebirth. We need to experience the spirit again. We need to remember that what he's trying to do is not just change our actions. He's trying to change who we are. So I tell you what we're going to do. If I can, I'm going to have you stand. And we're going to spend a little time in prayer. We're going to sing a couple of songs. The reason we're doing this is we want to become a house of prayer. We want to make sure that we are people who pray together. If this is a time where you have forgotten maybe how God wants to change you spiritually, you have forgotten to gaze on the cross and be changed and be different, then we want to give you that opportunity to spend some time in prayer with the Lord. If you're hurting and you need somebody to pray with you, grab hold of somebody. We'll pray with you. There's going to be elders and ministers around. If you want to talk to somebody about entering into this world with Christ, we would love to talk to you about that too. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a couple of songs. So let's pray. Holy God, we thank you so much for uh, this story. We thank you for someone with great faith like Nicodemus who came willing to ask the questions that may uh, shock him and may blow up his whole idea of how you work. And so, Lord, we, we want to be those people, too. We want to ask those questions. We want to make sure we haven't missed anything. We want to make sure that we haven't gotten to where we're just count, counting the passes and we've forgotten about how big the cross is, about how you change us. We want to lean into you. We want to trust you. We want to have everything that comes out of us come from the source of what you've done for us. Lord, we want to be changed by you. We ask that you would give us peace in our spirit, that you would help us to be people who have uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because we hold on so tightly to you. Please bless our time as we pray, as we sing songs. Uh, let your Holy Spirit guide us and change us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.